Welcome to Four Guys in a Comic. Here are the real fearsome hand of four, Red, Rusty, Tap, and Nova. Welcome everyone to another edition of Four Guys in a Comic. Well, I don't know if it's Four Guys in a Comic, it just seems to be uh, Rusty and I. Alex, you there still? Yeah, I'm here, man. I'm uh, I'm the one that made it. <sighs> so. Well, our other two cohorts of crime, they are out having a lot of fun because Tap and Nova are at a Comic-Con. Without us. Well, yeah, at least, uh, well, they were at least the past two days. They're they're making their journey home now. As we know, uh, Nova lives in uh, Canada, but he flew into the States to go visit uh, Tap in Nebraska. So, yeah, and I think that was their first time actually physically meeting each other. So, it's an exciting event. If you haven't checked it out, I think they sent a few pictures on our Twitter and did some other things, too. Yep. Yeah, Twitter, Instagram, did some live videos <clears throat> on Facebook, was it? Or was it Twitter? I can't remember. One or the other. Yeah, so you can check out some of their action on that. But speaking of action, we've seen a lot of action this week in comics. Yeah, quite a few things, actually. Yeah, so anything notable that sticks out in your head this last week that you just dying to get off your chest? You know what the weird thing is, man, is, you know, this week was pretty big, I guess, with Marvel comic releases. Yeah. But I really didn't, like, have my mind blown, I guess, really, by anything that came out. And you know me. Whoa, 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 wait uh, a minute. Wait a minute. What about issue 150 of Venom? Okay, that hasn't come out yet. No, but that, but, the, but yet. the information came out just this last week. It did come out. And, you know, I'm excited for our Eddie Brocks and everything else. The art looks cool. We're going to find out why Flash doesn't have the suit anymore and everything else. But at the same time, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm just like, Marvel, you had me going with all my pools. I think I spent like 30 bucks on comics this past week that were like all Marvel except for Hal Jordan, mm -hmm. which I haven't read yet, which I need to read. I mean, I'm obviously a week behind, but I have until next Wednesday before the next yes. comic comes out. So I have yeah. a little bit of time to read it. And um, just a weird thing. I mean, I'm excited for that Venom book. You know, I'm always excited for my Thanos and everything else. But this week we got our man thing our new man thing issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's issue number three or whatever. And I got to tell you, man, like I'm going to read the next issue, but this, I, it does. It seems almost like a mistake. Yeah. At this it's point. just, it's just not doing it. It just isn't. No. And it's really disappointing. I mean, I'm not trying to hate on RL Stein because you know, he did all the goosebumps mm -hmm. stuff and everything else. Usually, you know, great guy, but I mean, like I honestly feel like this man thing stuff is like almost trying too hard or not hard. I don't know how to describe it. It feels like they're trying to touch on elements from, you know, the man thing series from the seventies and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, we have old father we have the nexus and everything else and all the weird, weird stuff that brought you Howard the duck and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, I think it's more so Ted Salas, you know, who is the man thing. Um, he kind of has like a, sense of humor and you can see his thoughts in this even though he doesn't have speech mm -hmm. and you know i i may have missed a few things here or there in between you know the 80s and the 2000 series or whatever you know but it's just so weird to me that he's like i want to touch and make it feel like an old horror comic mm -hmm. 
but we're going to let him have feelings and we're going to let him think and we're going to let him have a sense of humor and all this stuff. When, you know, when you think back to like the seventies and the sixties for man thing or seventies, really, I guess only seventies. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, you know, he doesn't have a sense of humor. How can you have a sense of humor when you are stuck as this grotesque swamp Mm -hmm. creature you know, and they're almost making him play off like he's like Deadpool cracking jokes yeah. and stuff or Spider-Man or whatever. And it's like, this is not the Ted Salas that I remember. This is not the man thing that I remember. And like I said, you know, I might have missed something here or there. I understand they got a speech back and he got some, you know, like humane characteristics back. But at the same time, I'm just sitting here like, what are you doing, man? I mean, don't you feel like they destroyed a classic? <laughs> In a way, yeah. I almost feel like it's like kind of soiling it yeah. in a way. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, he is making an attempt with like, if you want to call it. Okay. Half the issue, if you haven't read one yet, is a man thing story. And then like the last four or five pages is a story he made up, which is from a name of a title of a horror comic series from the 50s called Chamber of Chills. Mm-hmm. Which was not owned by Marvel at the time. It was EC. You know, Marvel it? didn't exist. No, uh, Chamber of Chills was shoot. I for, I don't know if it was Charleston or or Charlton or whatever. It probably Charlton. If, that that would make more yeah. sense because they did a lot of horror stuff back in uh, Bronze Age. Yeah, I think it might be. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If someone knows what it really is or whatever, and I didn't correct myself by the end of this, by all means, you know, comment on us or something and call us out on it. But uh, just he's doing his own thing called chamber of chills where he writes just a random horror story kind of at the end of the book and he's supposed to give like that modern day twist with the classic day feel kind of thing you know like where we saw with the ec comics the chamber Mm -hmm. of chills or you know strange tales or house of mystery whatever you want to call it and just i don't know like I feel like he's trying to explain the situation too much, like it, because he's like a you know he wrote books, he had more stuff to work with. It was all text, and just I don't know. I feel like with a little bit of more of exposition mm-hmm. and a little less dialogue, he could make these stories turn out to be really good. But half of them feel like there's not a real ending to it. Like he'll plan out the beginning, it'll be a really good start, and then all of a sudden the ending is just like okay, this is the end, and it'll just end abruptly. Ugh. And it's just like leaves you hanging. You know, yeah, it leaves you hanging. You could take more time, especially this last series. The last one was about like stereotypical horror movies and like plots in horror movies, where a guy and a girl um, get stranded on the side of the road. They run out of gas and some creepy road. They walk down the street a few miles. And they come across the stereotypical scary house that's the only one around with the lights on. And then they open the door and they're like, oh, it's going to be some creeper guy. Mm-hmm. And then coincidentally, it's not a creeper guy, which was a surprise. And it was some pretty young girl. And then the twist at the end of it was that um the girl and the guy were fighting the whole time about the car breaking down and the girl planned it out the whole time and really it was just a way to uh, uh put this guy the guy she was with or the husband or boyfriend or whatever in a dungeon that was like a torture and this was something she found online 
mm-hmm. and she's like oh this is where you take your husband or your love your your boyfriend that you want to get rid of kind of thing or whatever mm-hmm. and it just ended so abruptly it was like open the door guy walks into the torture chamber they shut the door behind him the comic's over and it's just like what that's it yeah, the, more than half of the story was just them arguing, walking down the street like, oh, well, it's your fault you didn't put gas in the car. It's your fault you didn't pack an umbrella. And yeah. it was just like random, like, you know, little complaints when really there was not much action to the story. It was just the transitional phase of them breaking down and getting to the creepy part. Oh, man. Well, I found it. Chamber of Chills is brought to us by a publisher that the last one that I would have actually thought of, Harvey Comics. The same publishers really? that brought us Wendy the Good Witch and Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> that is so random. Yeah. I, I guess everyone was trying to get in on it back then, yeah. though. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Speaking of old comics, you know, just uh, Alterna, Alterna Publishers brought back newsprint comics. That's cool. But, that you know, is. watch out for those silverfish, right? Red yeah, Skull? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, uh, yeah, I finally took care of my silverfish problem, I think. But uh, that's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited to actually pick one up. I haven't been able to find one because not too many comic shops carry Alterna. So it's, yeah. <laughs> but I'm hopefully, dying to see it. I was about to say, hopefully, you know, they pick up. It seems like a newer comic company that, you know, you know, most new comic companies, they'll like, you know, get their big introduction and then they'll die off or whatever. But Alterna's kind of been chugging along yeah. now. And, you know, they're slowly getting bigger and bigger and more credit within the comic world. And it's just like, you know, with Aftershock or anything else, mm-hmm. you know, it takes time. It does. And but I feel like Alterna has, you know, a real foothold to be a, you know, uh, I wouldn't say like big two leader, but you know, a bigger leader within the indie comic world. Yes. And uh, the, like the one series that uh, we talked about on the show, uh, Ray Gun. Oh, yeah. Uh, God, I mean, that one, I, 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 I hope they put that out in uh, newsprint. I hope we can see it because that series was just phenomenal. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, that was a great podcast interview that we did with the guy, too. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, these little, like, under-the-radar, you know, stories that we see and stuff that just go unnoticed. And the thing is, if you go on Twitter or anything else, Alterna has this giant, like, following behind it. It like, does. We retweeted some stuff or we tweeted out some news about it, and we're still getting blown yes. up about it. Yeah, I you mean, know? it is just amazing, and you know, uh, and for those that uh, haven't listened to the podcast, it's with uh, Gregory Schoon that did Ray Gun, and I'm telling you that it's available in Comicology. Pick it up; it is great. Alterna has some great stuff, and to see the newsprint come back, I'm an old fan of newsprint. I, I always will be. You know, I am too. Yes, yes, and so I'm dying to see how they do it if they uh, did it right. Cool. Well, you know, we were talking about it a while back, and there was a um, uh, uh, there was a horror comic that was coming out by um, Corbin. I forgot his uh, first. I can't believe I forgot his first name. Um, it was like a, a Shadow of the Grave or something like that, and that whole thing was in uh, newsprint. Mm-hmm. But it was some random indie publisher. Uh, actually, it might not be that random. It might have been Dark Horse. <laughs> it might not have been that random. Yeah. But, um, you know, and that was all in newsprint. The whole thing was in black and white, and it kind of gave me that feel. So it's cool to see that there's going to be a publisher that just, you know, might specialize in that newsprint mm-hmm. kind of feel, you know. Yep, so. and this could be the thing that really blows them out of the water. 
It really could oh, be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of indie, Valiant, uh, coming out in June, they have a new signature series starting up where basically you go pick up your comic in the comic book shop. It'll be signed by the uh, writer or artist, and inside will be a letter of uh, certification to um to authenticize that this is actually their signature. Oh, really? Yes. That comes out on June, the end of June. That's cool. Yeah, it's end of June. That's cool. My question, though, is I wonder if CGC will honor that. That's a, oh, that's a good question. I yeah. mean, you know, for older, older comics with uh, certificates and stuff, you know, usually they'll honor them and stuff because there wasn't like a CGC system basically back then. You know, if it's like legit, I guess. I have a few... Um, what series is it? I think it's Infinity, Infinity Crusade, mm-hmm. where each I have every single issue of the series mm-hmm. signed by Ron Lim. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them looks like a nine point eight or whatever. Yeah, uh, because it looks like someone bought them as a set and got them all signed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them has their own like certificate of authenticity mm-hmm. from Ron Lim, and it even has a second signature from Ron Lim on the sign on to the verify. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just one of those things where they'll agree to it like that. I mean, they're gonna have to come to some kind of conclusion, you know. Because that was big in the '90s. I want to. I'm trying to remember. Was it IDW or Dynamite or somebody like that? I, oh, Dynamite, I think it was. And they had this whole uh, variant cover things that were coming out all the time, signed with uh, the certifications inside. I mean, it was a huge deal back then. Oh yeah. Well, like we were saying, I mean, back then, you know, especially uh, I would probably say, you know, like pre 2000s, there wasn't someone there that's going to like certify your comic at every event. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So that was the way that would get you get some little certificate that'd be like, you are signature 1,233 Mm -hmm. out of 3,000 or something like that, you know? And there was, uh, yeah, exactly. And there was some that was limited to say 50 or 100. Hmm. I mean, I guess that's how you figured out really who uh, was like, all right, let me just sign all of these and make all the money and who all the people were like, I'm doing this for the fans. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Who was the, who so, were the ones? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, it was cool. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not going to hate on it or whatever. I mean, it also makes me wonder too, because um, Stan Lee is doing his own like um, loot crate kind of thing or yep. whatever. And in the newest one, um, they said that one out of ten boxes gets a comic signed by Stan Lee. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, how do you verify this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know? you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it has but, the letter inside of it. This is an official, you know, Stan Lee autograph. Yeah. So it's just one of those things that makes you wonder. Yeah. Now, I, I have to ask, speaking of, like, 90s comics and stuff, mm-hmm. um, I I probably assume you didn't get into it, but um, you, did you happen to check out the new uh, Ben Riley book by uh, Peter David and uh, Mark Bagley? No, I have not. Oh man, um, the story itself is really weird, just because I don't feel like I know what's going on because mm-hmm. I haven't read like you know Clone Conspiracy or anything. But you know the humor in it is really funny, and the art, oh my gosh, man, 
it is so cool just to see you know bagley get back on it again and do Mm -hmm. spider-man and it feels like i mean you know it has its modern twist and he evolved and got better with time or whatever Mm -hmm. but it's still so cool to see some of the images and the fine lines and shapes and stuff of these characters and you're like this is like 90s spider-man all over again (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. Speaking of weird stuff, man, I read one comic this week that just was, even now, I still don't know what to think of it. Uh, From Image Comics, uh, issue one of Plastic. Oh, I've heard a lot of people talk about that. Yes. And I have their uh, uh, April Fool's variant cover on. I was about to say, is that a Spider-Man homage? Yeah, it is. It is. uh, Image put out uh, for the month of April, 11 April Fool's variants. And for Plastic, they did one uh, for Spider-Man. Well, I mean, basically, what this is about, really, you have this guy in a car having sex. And a couple times, decides to go get some donuts and some KY jelly and a few other miscellaneous things from the local (laughs) uh, uh, mini-mart. Goes back to his car, you know, the girl, the the person he's having sex with, Virginia, you know, she's getting hit on by three strangers through the window and he just beats the holy ever crap out of them. I mean, just amazing, you know, stuffing, you know, toilet scrubbers down their throat and stuff, you know, with like gruesome, like he has like superpowers or something or is it just like an average guy shoving a plunger down someone's throat? He just did it, you know, he ripped a guy's ear out. You know, he's just a guy who's just really good at uh, what he does, I guess. And that's rough. Yeah. And the next morning he gets uh, taken uh, by uh, basically the father of one of the guys he beats up as well as Virginia, who turns out to be a blow up doll. Wait, what? Yes, that's hence the name, the title, Plastic. <laughs> Virginia uh, is a blow-up doll. Who wrote this, oh, first off? Uh, this was written by uh, Doug Pottymouth Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, the father's like, if you don't, I, I looked into your history, and you, and basically, you know, you've been off the grid for like the last two years or something special with a guy with talents that I need. And basically the, this father seems to be like a mafia kind of guy. And he's like, you're going to do a job for me. And if you don't do it, Virginia's going to get it. Oh no. <laughs> because the guy's in, he, he is, his mind is warped. He believes Virginia's a real living thing that he's madly in love with. So he's willing to do this job to protect, to save this blow-up doll. Okay, this sounds like something that like Chip Zdarsky yes, would it do does. or something. It really does. Oh you my know? gosh. And like I say, you know, you read this, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, it was very well written. Uh, the art was really, really well done. That was by uh, Daniel Scribbles Hill- Hilliard. Hmm. And at the end of it, it you really want to read more, but you're still kind of like... WTF? What am I reading? <laughs> that sounds really interesting. I mean, like I said, I heard a lot of people talking about the series, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I think it went into a second printing. I'm pretty sure. I haven't seen anything about that, but it's possible. I'm something like this. I could see it possibly going into second printing. I mean, it seems like that needs seems to be the trend with uh, a lot of these image and indie comics and stuff <laughs> nowadays. It's like a new one comes out and everyone's like, buy it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Especially it their number ones. Be, you know. 
Yeah. Well, well actually, the surprise this week, uh, um, what is it? Seven to Eternity, number five, if I remember. That's gone into a second printing. Oh, really? And normally, number fives don't go into a second printing. No. You ever so often, you'll get those later comics that just the issue is so amazing mm-hmm. that it has to. But you don't hear about it that often anymore. Mm-mm. You know? No. But what was the other one uh, from Va- uh, Valiant? Exo Manowar number three, I believe it is. That went in. What, no, wait a minute. Number two. Issue number two has mm-hmm. gone into third printing. That's what it was. You know, I went on a hunt. Um, there's a comic shop by my new job. Mm-hmm. And every so often, when I, because there's a few restaurants around it and stuff, uh, when I eat nearby it and I'm already parked, I'll just walk over and just, you know, look and see if I could find any of these comics. I could not find Redneck, <gasps> could not find Exo Man of War, I could not find any of this stuff. And this is a little random mm-hmm. comic shop. Like, not one that you would think people would go out of the way to go to. Because mm-hmm. it's in a really random location, and it didn't have any of this stuff, and I was just amazed. I was like, "I am for sure I could find this stuff mm-hmm. here." No luck. Redneck, I'm telling you, it has it's off the shelves. It is difficult. It's already going for ten plus dollars on eBay for issue number one. It's gone into mm-hmm. second printing, and I got excited when you said that because this last Wednesday I went to my uh, LCS, and I I can't remember what it was. I was looking for a back issue of something. And lo and behold, somebody hid an issue of Redneck Number One in the very back, well, second from the back of the pile I was looking at. And I'm like, sold. <laughs> so I got two oh. copies of it. I was just like, wow, you know. Yep. No, buy that one up. That one yes. seems to be really hot right now. If you can find it, that's the, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. That. Oh, but anyways. So anything yeah. really cool you read? Yeah, uh, I was going to say, you know, speaking of kind of hot books, is uh, I read the second issue to uh, X-Men Blue. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Okay, I mean, I know that came out last week, and, you know, we're a little bit behind on uh, what came out. But, you know, just talking about it, we're not going to get the third issue for another week. Mm-hmm. You know, next Wednesday we'll get it. It's a bi-weekly book now. Um <laughs> The big, like, you know, surprise thing with the end of the first issue was, you know, Wolverine's son from the uh, Ultimate Universe popping up. And, you know, also Magneto introducing himself as being, you know, the leader of the new group, or the uh, what, what mentor or whatever, you know. But, I mean, we already knew that was happening. But in this issue, it was a lot about, like, you know, the background of, the new X-Men or the ones that are time displaced um, actually going and trusting Magneto and what it took. Because, you know, since they are time displaced, even Gene was talking to him and was saying, you know, look, you know, maybe to you, this was like 30 years ago, 20 years ago or whatever, you know, because, you know, comic times messed up. But um, she was like, you know, to us, we were fighting you like last week. That's what it felt like. You know what I mean? And it's like, and to think about all this, you know, to us, this is our first encounter with you back then. And we only have a negative impact of you. Then coming into the future and we hear all these stories of the things you've done Mm -hmm. after that, you know, like, uh, you know, trying to enslave, you know, the, the world, trying to, you know, kill everyone but the mutants, um, even trying to go against your own kind. It's just like, 
you know, how can we trust you? Yeah. And Magneto actually lets young Gene go in his mind hmm. and, you know, be like, this is why you can trust me. This is what needs to happen. But at the same time, throughout the issue, you kind of get like a sense of, you know, can we really trust Magneto mm-hmm. in this situation? And he even has like a cool butler thing, kind of like Jarvis or whatever. It's like a robot butler in this <laughs> issue or whatever, which which is cool to look back on. And it even alludes to, you know, one of the weird things. I don't know if you recall it or not, but um, me and Tap were talking about that uh, young beast that's time displaced now um, knows how to do magic. Okay. Hmm. So you have young beast who's not blue yet. He's not furry. He's still an adolescent who's learning things. He's still just as smart, but, you know, he's not as experienced as his older self. And he learned how to do magic. And uh, there's a scene in it where Scott comes up to him and wants to talk to him because, uh, you know, Beast missed their training exercise because he was studying for something else or whatever in the danger room. Mm -hmm. And um, Beast is like, you know, I'm sorry that I did this in the first issue because in the first issue he sent, um, what was it, Juggernaut or whatever through hell and then dropped him off somewhere basically. Mm -hmm. But to get to there, he had to travel through hell, and he was, like, kind of shunning him for using his magic to do such a thing. And um, Beast, after Scott walks away, is just like, it's sad to see that, you know, uh, Scott or Cyclops, the X-Men, don't understand the magic arts, the dark arts. They're afraid of the dark arts or whatever. And it kind of alludes to, like, maybe Beast having some kind of evil intention or whatever. And it really makes you wonder. But the thing that really struck it, and I'm just going to say it because I know you're not going to read it. And if you guys haven't read it, then you need to pause the recording and go ahead about like maybe 10 minutes or so, five minutes or so. But um, at the end of the issue, uh, we find like Magneto sends you know, the young X-Men out to go fight a Sentinel somewhere or whatever. And they're like, what's up with the Sentinel? Because the Sentinel's acting weird and it knows their names and everything mm-hmm. else. But they're like, how do you know our names? Who created you kind of thing? And uh, we go back to a scene of Magneto with his robot butler walking into the basement of their new headquarters or whatever. And he's like, I've built a time machine to send the X-Men back to their correct time. Hmm. So... It's one of those things, I know we're going to continue through the series, but I'm wondering by the end of the series if it's going to finally send the all-new X-Men back to their own time period. Because that seems to be the intentions of Magneto for the whole thing. He says he wants to establish his own, you know, sense of identity. He doesn't, he understands that, you know, what Charles was doing back then was something that might been for the greater good with all the good things that X-Men have done in the past. But at the same time, it feels like he's trying to manipulate them into some of his own ideals that might, you know, change the future a little bit in the mm-hmm. ideals of the current X-Men. And um, it's, it's kind of cool to see that, you know, this might be the story that wraps up this time displacement mess. Mm-hmm. And Colin Bunn might be actually doing us a good thing in erasing some of Re- Remender's, you know, uh, stuff that people don't like in the X-Men. Oh, cool. 
Well, yeah. you know, speaking of X-Men, we could go to a source right now. I know, right? Speaking of X-Men. Yes. What do you say we give a call to the one and only Larry Houston? That sounds good to me. Let's give him a ring. Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, welcome to the interview section of our podcast. Today, Red Skull and I are proud to present a man who has probably had something to do with one or more of your favorite 90s cartoons and an animation series extraordinaire. I'm talking about Mr. Larry Houston. Larry, how's it going? I'm doing fine, guys. Awesome. Good to hear. Yes, thank you for joining us. This is uh, really cool. I know, right? I'm glad to talk to people who remember what I did very fondly. Oh, God, oh yeah. I grew up with that stuff. I mean, love it. You know, the way, whether it be Captain Planet or X-Men or whatever, I just, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, I knew that you had something to do with the X-Men stuff, but then, like, actually sitting down and, like, looking into your past, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he did, like, G.I. Joe stuff and, what is it, RoboCop and all kinds yeah. of stuff. I'm just like, what? See, and it was just... G.I. Joe. God, I was big into G.I. Joe back in the early 80s. Oh, That was... That was, I have to admit, I think I was in the right place at the right time in the 80s and 90s for all of that stuff because I got I got a chance to work on all the stuff I, I always wanted to work on. And, um, you know, Spider-Man's Amazing Friends, G.I. Joe, Transformers, uh, Ninja Turtles, uh, Thundar. Um, let's see, going forward to um, uh, uh, the Karate Kid, working on... Um, the other one um ghostbusters and then being one of the producer being producer director of the x-men and uh then i did the second season of fantastic four um then i did the uh, the real adventures of johnny quest oh yeah and it's probably another one i can't remember but i worked on quite a bit quite a few <laughs> yeah and prior to the x-men which that was our pilot that never never got sold but we gave it a sh- good shot you know i still have friends of mine that swear by that pilot you know watching it online and stuff and they're just like why was this not a thing like why did this not get further we tried our best um i mean with that pilot actually the original bad guys in the pilot of pride of the x-men were supposed to be the sentinels mm-hmm. but the people who were backing the uh, the pilot with money wanted more figures to sell so we had to retool it and that's how you got McNeil, the blob and mm-hmm. the white queen, you know, all, all the rest of them. But that's who would what want to buy a but... Sentinel army though. I mean, come on, you know, I remember in the seventies <laughs> I had my stormtrooper army. I've gotten a Sentinel army. <laughs> we, 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 we tried. So that, that's how, that's part of the genesis of how that came about. You know, yeah. Very... uh, my, it was my, it was myself, um, Will Minio and Rick Holberg we were the three directors who working with the writer, Larry Parr, uh, we created, we wrote it basically all, all of us together mm-hmm. and, uh, trying to use it back then. We were all working for Marvel productions and we were trying to sell it to Fox and we did our best and it didn't sell, but 
if you fast forward about five years from that, um, five, six years, something like that, the lady who was in charge of Marvel Productions, Margaret Lesh, mm-hmm. got hired at Fox. And one of the first things she did was she remembered what, you know, the X-Men, and she brought us all in to say, we're going to do this. Now that she was in charge, she could greenlight it. And that's how we got it. That's how we got it on the air. So not only right place at right time, but the right contacts at the right places. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it was, was what's the word serendipity? We're all yeah. at the, in the right place at the right time, and everything, all the stars aligned, and everything, and we just we went for it. That's cool. Um, you got to remember back then, though, um, we didn't think we were going to survive more than one year, one season, because that's what the norm was back mm-hmm. then. So we just created an arc for 13 episodes. We went balls out and uh, just trying, especially in the last one, the final solution, just tried to make it a, as big a blast we could make it. I put a lot of energy into making things creative, trying to do things I hadn't done before, hadn't seen before. And, and um, you know, we at the end of that season we were all had our resumes ready we were going to move on to something else and then we got a call from fox saying we got a pickup got another season and it started and then it it just kept going on from there for for about the next well four years that's awesome so i have to say this like whenever we announced this to a lot of our fans and stuff they were ecstatic okay that we were going to be interviewing the director behind x-men animated series so when that happened and I announced it, I have to say this. The rooms we blew had up. Got, the rooms blew up, and we got more fan questions for you than any other guest that we've had on the show. And that includes, like, Chris Claremont, yeah. Jim Starlin, and all those guys. Over two years, oh, wow. the most questions that we've ever seen. Now, we filtered through some of these. Yeah. So <laughs> I figured that we would do the fans some justice, okay? And we would ask you a few of their questions, okay? So are you ready for this? Yes, yes. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so our first question came from a fan that went by Misfit. And he wanted to know, was it the budget of the show, or what was it that was able to keep it so close to the comic content when you were working on X-Men? The reason we we kept it very close to the content was that we had creative people involved who grew up with the, uh, with the X-Men. We all grew up. I mean, I... I used to tell people, look, I have all this this Marvel information trivia in my head that's absolutely useless in life, but on this series, it came in perfect. I was I knew exactly who was married to who, who liked this, who was the brother of that. And my my criteria when I'm working on a show is that I didn't want to change anything unless we had to. You know, I wanted to try I want to try and do the books as closely as possible. And to that extent, when, like, there's an episode with, uh, sorry, I think it's about Slave Island. I can't, I think that's the name of the episode. Uh, that some of the writers that they brought on weren't, you know, into that mythology of the comic books. And they would write, uh, like, generic ma- male mutant number one, generic female mutant number two, whatever. And so for me, what I did was when I found that in the scripts, I'd say, okay, I talked to my staff. I said, okay, make this one Blob, make this one Mystique, make this one uh, Sunfire. I knew the characters, who they should be, and uh, we we pulled 
as much as possible from the books. We were bringing our collections to work, mm. and uh, we we'd start thumbing through it and saying, "Okay, where where is this picture? Where's that picture? Oh yeah, let's take this guy here." And like when they went to Genosha, all the uh, the uh, equipment and stuff, we just we just copied it and put it on the air. Tried to be as close as we could. Now, did you ever bounce so any those ideas off of some of the writers, say maybe like Chris Claremont or Bob McLeod or somebody like that, to say, hey, what are your thoughts? No, no. At, at that time, you got to remember, the um, New York, Marlboro, New York, uh, really didn't have a lot of faith in Hollywood mm-hmm. in trying to translate uh, the books into television. So we didn't really get a lot of cooperation in that aspect mm-hmm. in the uh, I think they got. I think the editorial staff, uh, maybe the story editor, which was uh, Eric and Julia Lewall, might have got a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but they were they were mainly dealing with I think Bob Harris at the time, and um, probably one other person over there. But uh, no, we never interacted directly with anybody back there, and they they were like uh, they were like waiting to see what the first episode would look like before they made in any kind of comments because of you know past history you know they try and do a marvel show and it just turns out not good so we're pretty much on our own to try and prove ourselves out here and uh, so we just we just did our best Mm -hmm. all right well one of our other listeners uh ds smart wanted to know how hard was it to keep wolverine pg Yes, that was probably, yeah, we had to do a lot of trickery to try and make that work because he couldn't skewer and disbow. He could not do that on Saturday morning. So Mm-mm. he would slash and, I mean, the only person he could he could go to town with was on a robot. But if it was like him ta- attacking Sabretooth, it's a lot of slashing and nothing happens or flipping. And, yeah, we couldn't do what, like, what happened in the, the live action film Logan, where he just cut loose, mm-hmm. you know, no, we couldn't do any of that. So we just had to make a PC for Saturday morning because that's what it was. We, the target audience was like five to 12 year olds. And so we had standards we had to ad- adhere to. So that's where, that's what happened. And we just kind of like, uh, faked it a little bit <laughs> here and there. Okay. Well, I mean, I couldn't imagine. I, I mean, uh, to me, like even in, when they were talking about the new like Wolverine, uh, like you know, making a standalone movie before we knew it was R with Logan and everything, I was sitting there with friends, and I'm like, "How do you make a Wolverine movie when his like power is cutting people in half? Yeah. Like yeah. that's what he does, you know?" <laughs> yeah, Some colorful yeah. metaphors. <laughs> yes, yes. Awesome. So. Well, um, so our next, uh, I guess, fan, uh, Balgus has a question for you and he said this is specific to you he's like have you ever been in talks to do live action x-men films and if not can it be arranged somehow (laughs) you know no i never got a chance to never got the offer uh and um i'm pretty much probably out of the loop on that because there are a lot of people (laughs) already doing that kind of stuff you know uh but the uh yeah at that time one of the things I told New York, Marvel New York about was, you know, the actors at the, the voice actors at that time could have played the X-Men because they were really uh, visually at that time, back in the nineties, they were close to being what the, what the characters could have been. And um, 
well, they didn't listen to me, but <laughs> they're lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. they're lost. You know. Was there one voice actor that really stands out today that you still remember? That was like, my gosh, that person just had it nailed down, perfect. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, I think her name is Lenora Zane Zahn. I think her name. She does Rogue. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and uh, she, yeah, she nailed the character back then, and she, because of a voice her quality of her voice, that's her actual voice she uses that she's when you're talking to her. Mm-hmm. That, that's her. It's not an acting voice. That's her voice. That's wow. the way she talks. Wow. And that must have been why wrote. it was so perfect. Yeah. Like, like honestly, like gr- you know, growing up and uh, watching cartoon and stuff, just like hearing that, and then like comparing it, I guess, to the comics. You know, later on, whenever I started getting more into the comics and less from the TV show, it's just like this is like too perfect. And, that and, voice and it's is cool still to know. Your head. Yeah. Yeah. Just hearing yeah, her yell, uh, act- "Sugar at you." <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the other actor was um i don't have his name but the actor that played cyclops i mean the you know the and i seen comments you know he came across like a stiff and everything but and it when we were doing recordings i mean the guy's actually a comedian and he would have takes that were that would break up the staff and we would all be laughing but we couldn't use it you know because that wasn't in the script but he was a very funny actor oh um, we need a blooper reel Yes, I know. I wish I had. Yeah, I wish I had been able to get some of those. But a lot of the, you know, what we received back here in, in uh, the states, because it, it was recorded in uh, Toronto, mm-hmm. we didn't get the uh, like the entire recording. We we got the edited version uh-huh. for us to work from to create the shows. But when I was up there uh, with the voice actors, you know, I, you're there and you can hear all the the funny takes and and. The off-color jokes that they <laughs> fun. play off each other with him it was hilarious that's so cool oh, that is cool so red you're gonna take oh, the next question okay yes uh let's see here where was i uh, mcfly walker <laughs> interesting name uh he wanted to know <laughs> okay. why the decision to create morph rather than using existing shapeshifters uh morph was created because we wanted to in the first episode, we wanted to make sure that people didn't think the X-Men was Super Friends. So we wanted, and we got the permission from uh, from Fox that, look, we have a character, and we're going to kill, we're going to kill him off. And um, we went back into the books. I think it's somewhere in the X-Men 40s or 50s or something. There was a character called Changeling, who was the character they created because they at one point, they killed Professor X off, and then they made. Then somewhere they said, "Oh shit, we got to bring him back." So they created a character for one issue, saying, "Hey, guess what? That wasn't that wasn't Professor X. That guy was a shapeshifter." <laughs> so now he's back in the books. They brought him back for you know they created a character for one book. So we we wanted we took the visual for that character and made him into Morph, but we couldn't call him Changeling because that's one of the Teen Titans. And even though Marvel had the, the trademark first, the copyright first, Marvel lawyers said, find another name. So that's how the word morph came about. And that's how it was created. And it was created to show that this what those consequences to, to the X-Men in the show that, you know, characters could get killed. And that's where that came from. And, um, you know, we kind of told, you know, BSMP, you know, hey, we're going to bring them back at the end of the episode, end of the, you know, like, the 13th episode. We actually didn't want to do that. 
he's going to be dead for for the whole season. <laughs> and um, but what happened was we got picked up, and then so we had to bring him back the second season, which was we figured out another way of okay, let's you know we figured out another villain that they could use to. Um, Okay, Sinister. Sinister's always playing around with biology and stuff. So, okay, we brought him in, and that's how season two started. But uh, that's where Morph came from. We wanted to set the, set the bar that, you know, this was a, as serious as you could get on Saturday morning. That, you know, and when, you know, Wolverine comes in and punches Cyclops in the, in the stomach, it was like, you know, yeah, was, that, that meant something, you know, like, yeah, you know. Where he was gonna, he was pissed. (laughs) So I have to ask then, with the character morph being created for the show, how cool was it whenever Age of Apocalypse came out and the character was kind of adapted to comics in a way? They used the name anyway. Yeah, that was kind of cool. I didn't expect them to. uh, I didn't expect Marvel New York to, you know, follow up on the character, but it was kind of nice to see him again. It was like, oh, look at that, they used it. Um, that was kind of fun. Saying, "Oh, look, there's a character we created in the show, and it's out now. It's in the books again." Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I have to say, in uh, Age of Apocalypse, uh, Morph was a really good comedic relief, which was completely opposite of his character in the show, basically. But it, yeah. in the, yeah, yeah, it was cool that they kind of took it off of that. Um, I was kind of late in the game for Age of Apocalypse, like reading it. Uh, but I, you know, I'd always watched the show. So whenever I saw it, I was like, wait a minute. And I automatically connected it to the show the first time I ever saw the character. And I was just like, okay, yeah. I see what you're doing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It gave the, it gave the show, you know, at least, yeah. When he was in the first season, he, you know, in the first episode, I believe before he gets killed. I mean, he was, he was the one character that Wolverine liked and he made him laugh. And we set that relationship up, relationship up. So that uh, it had a payoff. Awesome. So, I mean, you already brought it up, but one of our, I mean, I have to go straight to this question, even though it's a little bit down on the list, just because you brought it up. Um, our fan who goes by Toe Cutter um, <laughs> was wanting to know about the memes that are made from the cartoon, like Wolverine running up and punching Cyclops and how people took frames from the show and kind of turned it into this like internet sensation thing. <laughs> They, they have. I mean, I haven't seen it. I yeah. unfortunately, I, I have not seen some of it. That sounds like fun. Oh, it is. Funny. Oh, I mean, you are everywhere. missing out. It is funny. The one where it's um, Wolverine looking at the picture of uh, Gene and Scott in bed, and he cuts mm-hmm. it in half. That is yeah. a really big meme online where people will just take the frame of him like looking at it and put different pictures in it instead of uh, Gene and Scott. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't go anywhere without seeing that. Everybody cuts it up for their own personal use for something that they're disgruntled about or whatever it might be. And I see it all the time, nonstop, for the last who knows how many years. Yeah. Wow. And okay. I I will say this too that uh the scene of Wolverine running up and punching Cyclops because I mean I don't know if you agree like I guess you kind of do. You said he was a stiff. I, I mean, in comic books, you know, Scott was. He wasn't the most liked character, I guess you could say. I mean, he had his own fandom or whatever. But a lot of people ask, and they're like, they use that for like, you know, different Cyclops jokes and stuff. Where it'll be just Wolverine running up and punching him in the stomach, and they'll make some kind of punchline to it. Mm-hmm. You see that a lot. Yeah. You see it often. You do. 
Yeah, he he was, you know, in, at least in, in the in the context of the stories we were writing, there wasn't any latitude to to, you know, um, to give him any more than he's the guy in charge, he's second in command, he's got to be a commander, and yeah, you know, I I grew up with Cyclops in the comic books, and so I didn't think of him as a stiff. He was just like the commander. But um, yeah, I could see how where kids watching the shows like he we weren't able to like explore more of his another side of his personalities. You know, I think we got into some of his backstory here and there, but not enough to. Uh, um, I think when he met his brother, or when he met his father, I think we tried to explore that some more. No, that's actually a really good episode with Corsair and everything. I, I really enjoyed that episode. I think y'all actually did, an honestly, a very good job with what you had with Cyclops. Uh, you know, just Cyclops in general, you know, uh, especially nowadays, everyone's like, uh, Scott Summers is wrong, you know, Cyclops is wrong and stuff. You know, he just has the stigma to it. But, you know, in the cartoon, honestly, y'all did a great job with him. Oh, thanks. Um, I know we put in a, I, I, we, uh, we put in a scene once where I think Cyclops met his brother but he didn't know it was his brother and they shot their powers at each other and it didn't work and we we had planned on ex- doing another episode where ex- to explain that but that episode got that plot line got excised for something else and so we weren't able to pay off that scene but uh, you know we were able to try and put the thing about you know siblings not being able to hurt each other when they did we did an episode of um I think it's Black Tom versus Banshee, and they use their powers and they can't hurt each other, so they start busting each other, you know, punching each other. That's all they could do. Um, but yeah, we, I, I, that's that's what happened in that situation. Awesome, cool. Well, we have one uh, listener, a uh, fan blade, would like to know: Would you ever reboot the show for today's audience? Um, I think I'd love to. I mean, if we ever got a shot, I mean, the gang, we're still around. We're still above ground. <laughs> and uh, um, We're still out there. We're, um, I think Eric Lewald's putting together a book that'll be out in September on X-Men, the animated series, where we've all done interviews with him. And he's, he's loaded the book up with all this back behind the scenes stuff from interviews from myself and Will and Margaret Lesh, the voice actors. Um, it's coming out, yeah, this year, so... It's going to be even more backstory than I can remember because, you know, I can't remember everything, but somebody remembers something (laughs) and it'll it'll be there. Well, let's see if it were to happen, Uh, what kind of changes or was there something in it that you would never was able to do that you would love to try to um, pull off now? Or or maybe even is there like a a story arc that you would go with now if you were given another season? Wow. Um, I'd have to think that through because I think we – we did the Phoenix saga and the dark Phoenix saga. And, um, you know, I'd have to think about what other what are the stories we weren't able to get to that were like major story arcs, um, past Phoenix. Um, I probably would, I, I, I'd have to do some research. I'm afraid I don't have an answer directly for that. But if you got, do you guys remember anything after that? That was like, Oh, as, oh. Well, maybe Onslaught. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Onslaught was the was uh, uh, Xavier's 
yeah. subconscious mm-hmm. or something like that, right? Yeah, it was his subconscious, uh, the, all the evil things that were in his brain mixed with Magneto, basically. So yeah. I would say get the yeah. voice actor Steve Bloom, who already does the voice of Red Skull, and do the whole thing where Red Skull takes Xavier's brain and uh, <laughs> do that whole stuff. Oh, you play off the new arc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd do something like along those lines. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I, very I'm, cool. I'm, I'm I'm down for it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. Uh, so, uh, this is one of my favorite questions, I guess, that was sent in to us. Um, and I, I mean, I've kind of been waiting to get into. It. I mean, we have a few others, but this is probably my favorite one that was sent in. Um, a fan by the name of Mark was wondering if you felt any competition or pressure between other cartoons at the time, such as Batman, the animated series or Spider-Man or other cartoons. Um, we didn't feel any pressure. Um, maybe a little competitiveness. Um, Bruce Tim was the, uh, guiding force behind Batman. I, I, I worked on his show. I did, I did a couple of freelance boards on the first season of Batman. But since we were both on the same Fox network, um, when we were all getting like, you know, top, top ratings, you know, it's kind of like maybe a, a competition of like between, you know, friend, a friendly competition, but, uh, the, um, the Batmans were basically had like double or triple our budget. I'm not sure exactly what, but I know they had a huge budget and they could really make their show shine with a lot of retakes and, we didn't have that kind of money in our shows. We had to make the stories as best we could. And to that extent, we, we, we try to call the, the, the stories and the plot into something and make it very, make the story as strong as we could. And my production extent experience from working in the business about, Oh God, what is that now? About 13 years before starting the, cause I got into business in 1980 and I brought I brought to the X Men my production experience, so I knew how to make the shows work and get through production without a lot of speed bumps, like I called it. And the one thing you'll notice in in the X Men that unless there's a mood shot, um, I never let the X Men walk. It's always they cut and they're flying, they're cut, they're there. I tried to not let people walk. Because it just cut down on, you know, if you have too much walking, you have too much animation, then you have to lose part of the story. Mm Because you only have 22 minutes to put on the air. So I knew how to cut production costs down to make the show very efficient so we could keep as much story as possible. And even throw in some new stuff. I mean, there are a lot of scenes in, in so many episodes, like the Time Fugitive, where like uh episode one you know i think it's bishop coming back and stuff and then episode two is like a repeat of one but it's a different writer and so i had to re re storyboard the entire fight scene with cable and bishop in the show Mm. myself i had to re storyboard the whole thing to try and make sure it matched the previous episode um and so i knew how to be uh, how to do the same, like repeat scenes. So if I repeated the scene exactly, that saves some money overseas because that means they didn't have to do that shot again. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you'll notice. Yeah, I just yeah, there are things like like um, what's the uh, Mister Sinister? Mm-hmm. If you look at him, he's got all of these. He's got this rooster tail cape, 
and he's got all these lines on him. He's got all this detail, right? And I didn't want the animators to kill themselves, you know, walking in the sky or turning in the sky. So if you look at the most sinister scenes, except for a few, he never moves. I always like, you see him talking, you cut to who he's talking to. When you cut back, he's in another position. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't move. Or I'd, I'd cut to a close-up and have him walk in and out of shadow. And that would not kill the animators, but also it created a, he created more of like a, a vampire coming in and out of shadows, but also it saved the animators from drawing that rooster tail, which would have killed them, yeah. you know, and killed production time. You know, the times the animators could have been, could have been spending making the show better in other spots. So mm-hmm. makes sense. I Very made smart. the show as, as production friendly mm-hmm. as I could. And so and hopefully they appreciated that. How, that. <laughs> yeah. Well, overseas. Yeah. Hopefully they, I don't know. Sometimes they'd even, they, they would, there were certain studios, I think, when we sent us the, the shows overseas, we never knew which studio we were, we were going to get because they were like, they go to one place called ACOM, and ACOM would send it out, farm it out to like two or three or four other Korean studios. Mm. And some were best, some were really good, some were like, eh, you know, so, so, and so we didn't, we never knew what we were going to get back. And so I, when I did, when I would uh, edit, the storyboards before they went overseas, I tried to put everything but the kitchen sink into the shows. <laughs> so when it came back, if I got back 60% of what I wanted, okay, at least I got that, that much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's how I, I produced the shows and trying to get the quality that I wanted. And, um, there's some sequences where like I created entire fight scenes. There's another sink sequence, I think. And, um, Oh God! It's the one where Xavier, his evil self, comes out and he's kind of green, um, and he goes after Wolverine in the subway. That entire sequence in the subway, I made up. Hmm. That never existed. I made up that entire sequence because there was another one that was written, and I didn't think it worked. It was, it was wrong. So, whenever you see that that entire sequence, I made up, except for the certain dialogue that the writer wrote. I kept some of it and tossed a lot of a lot of the way and uh, made it into what you saw so I, I did a lot of behind the scenes you know um, fixing stuff mm-hmm. or if someone wrote a character doing something that you know this character can't do that I would just take my pen and just scratch it out until the artist this is you know the blob does this or pyro does that and um so that's how I kept everything as close to the books as possible. Mm-hmm. It was just that was a lot of me, me making the show I wanted to see. Cool. There you go. Cool. It panned out. Um, that is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have another question here from uh, Liver Die, and he want to know whose idea was it to make the intro, and that's actually something I'm kind of interested in too because I mean that intro is so iconic. You know that tune itself. What is the history and story behind all of that? Um, the, the talking about the music tune, uh, that was something that took 15 takes to get. That was oh, not wow. done the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was done by the music was created at Saban. And um, at first they tried to deliver something generic, which was like, no, this is not working. And um, Saban was used to like 
making cookie cutter music cues and stuff and just mm-hmm. you know it was like you know, whatever you know they just wanted to get it off the desk yeah and eric lee wall and will minio uh stood their ground because they there was a certain sound they wanted to get and they kept rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the music and saban was really really getting pissed off but it was about the 15th near the 15th take that 13th take they got close and then the 15th one was the one that, that you hear every day mm. and that's how that tune was created now in terms of the uh opening intro with the visuals mm-hmm. will Manuel did the first two scenes and then i did everything else oh wow i drew that entire uh opening to opening intro that is and so that's yeah so that that was both of us doing working on the, on the opening titles that is so oh. cool oh <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was a lot of fun you know if you gotta imagine you're i i grew up you know reading marvel comics i'm working with stanley i'm working on the x-men and i have total con- control over you know my 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 part of production and it's like and 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 when i have people working on a show and we're all x-men fans we're all marvel fans and mm-hmm. so and the, the other thing was is that they had a, the people who were like uh, um at fox really had no idea what what the hell a mutant was they didn't know what the x-men were so they were not trying to micromanage me so pretty much they let me do what i wanted to do so i got in under the radar and did the show I wanted to see. If I was a kid, this is the X-Men show I wanted to do. And even if it only lasted one season, you know, at least I did, I shot my, I gave it my best shot and uh, I could live with that. And, you know, when we got the pickup, we were all surprised, really, really surprised. And, uh, you know, went on for another four years. Very cool. So I think that, I have our last fan question, okay? And then we'll get okay. into just a little bit of stuff between me and Red Skull that we're curious about. Because, you know, we've been <laughs> sitting here reading all the fan stuff, and we have some of our own. But our last fan question for you is from a guy by the name of Asteroid. And, you know, it's kind of a lot, a little more on the, the sad, depressing end. But Asteroid wants to know, why did X-Men the Animated Series end? Why did it end? Um, I was not there when it ended. It was, I had actually left in season four. Um, I got into a, an argument with a Fox executive and um, kind of pissed me off. And so I got a, I, I got a call from uh, New World Pictures that they were doing, they were doing like a second season of Fantastic Four. And I said, I asked him, are you, I, the one thing I wanted was creative control. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, you got it. And so I left, I didn't, I was not there for season five. And my, um, my assistant uh, director, he took over, um, Frank Squalachi, he took over the last season. So I wasn't there for season five when it did get canceled. But my understanding was, um, it had to do with money. Mm. I, I, that's my best memory. Um, Frank Scolacci probably know better, but and actually Eric Lewall will probably know even better. Those two guys. He was a story editor, so 
unfortunately, I wasn't. I can't answer that question with a lot of certainty because, um, yeah, I, I was there for the first four years, but not the fifth. Well, if you ask yeah. me, it sounds like because you left, it lost uh, the heart and the drive and uh, the real creative person behind it. Okay, I'll I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I don't want to disparage my friends, so yeah, I'll take what you said. Okay, cool. Hey, you didn't say it; he said That's it. That's right. You're right. You said it. <laughs> uh, we've talked so much X Men. Let's kind of steer away a little bit from the X Men. I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. Um, my goodness, uh, I don't even know where to begin. A uh, GI Joe, I guess. Uh, now you did the uh, opening sequence for the movies, correct? Yes. Now I, I do uh, that. I, I was wanting to know why the change in um, in the openings from the movies compared to the TV show. The, the change? Yes. I'm not sure what you mean. Okay, so the, in the um, the movies, they had a, basically like a different opening se- uh, segment than it had in the uh, uh, cartoon series. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, the um, Hasbro when they they wanted to have uh, an intro, a spectacular intro for the movie mm-hmm. uh, that they were planning. And so they they requested, it was myself, uh, Boy Kirkland, Frank Parr, um, to come up with some ideas. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, at that time, there was, for me, there was a, the Statue of Liberty was coming up. It was like one of those 200, 300 years, whatever it is. Yeah. And for me, that that say, okay, I can do something around the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. If the United States is going to celebrate it, Cobra might come in and just try and, uh, you know, screw things up. And so I started creating the opening and just kind of went with it. I mean, I didn't even have a, I didn't have music. I just kind of oh. drew it and started creating this gigantic battle mm-hmm. and um, trying to showcase in the battle, like, maybe G.I. Joe's that don't necessarily get any screen time. Mm-hmm. And I started, you know, like Iceberg and some other characters. Yeah. I just, and I just started make, I just started drawing a, basically a stream of consciousness over about a period of two weeks mm-hmm. and kind of just made it up from nothing. Oh. And uh, when, when I got it done, they showed it to Hasbro and they approved it. And then mm-hmm. they sent that overseas to toy animation and, I was like blown out of my off my out of my seat because um, they gave it a theatrical budget as opposed to a TV budget, mm. and they drew everything I put on the paper. I was so I was damn impressed. I was like, "Oh shit, look at that! They did that. That's cool." When you when I would work on a TV show, I put in details. I put in small things in the background. I'd have a subtleties things happening that when you, when you got it on a TV budget, they might ignore it. But in the G.I. Joe opening mm-hmm. intro, they drew, they drew everything that I drew in the backgrounds. I was like, oh, crap, look at that, look at that, look at that. They did it. <laughs> oh, it was, it was, I was ecstatic. Yeah, it is cool because one of the things I, that distinctly to this day I always think about when I think of that opening sequence is you know, with the G.I. Joe and then you got those uh, like that, the uh, fireworks sparkles that come around the name. I was like, that just looks cool. <laughs> yes, yeah. And that, that's what happens if you have animation with a, with a theatrical budget. They, yeah. they now have the money to do the optical work mm-hmm. and uh, to, make, to do everything you want, you know. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. 
and it, it, it shows. It really showed. Awesome. So I have to ask, Larry, okay, for one of my questions, I know you've done work on gosh knows how many different things. You've had many a project in your day, but is there one project that was maybe your favorite or something that just kind of stood out to you and became yes, special? I want to know that to myself. Well, the, the most fun show I've worked on was was the X-Men because I had the most free reign to do what I wanted. And, um, you know, I like the X-Men. The oh, I yeah. guess what comes in was in second. I mean, I, I did some work on uh, at, at a company called Ruby Spears on a company. Uh, it was on Thunder. I got a chance to work with uh, NC, see Jack Kirby and Gil Kane. And um, that was a lot of fun back in the 80s on that kind of show. The other one I think would be uh, Johnny Quest. Oh, I worked on Johnny Quest um, uh, at Hanna-Barbera. Mm -hmm. And that was a show that um, I grew up as a kid and in the 60s watching Johnny Quest mm -hmm. on my little small TV set and going, you know, Doug Wildy created this little kids, this little show, but it was actually on in uh, prime time. And it, you know, it was, I was just, Florida, I just love that show. Yeah, and to get a chance to actually do, you know, to do the uh, Johnny Quest show, um, working with my uh, uh, Davis Doy, he was the other other co-director. That was another fun show. Mm -hmm. I guess in third place would probably be a show that kind of disappeared. Nobody saw it. It was um, uh, the Karate Kid, where it was a show I did. It only lasted one season, and I tried to make it. I did my best to try and keep you know make the show exciting keep it like you know keep keep the ratings up but you know the writers weren't on the same page as me so it only lasted one season it kind of came and went that's rough um, and that, 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 that's i can't remember today it had actually uh pat morita in there as a voice actor if i remember correctly didn't it yes yeah yeah yes yeah he was there and so i got to go to some of the recordings and got to meet him and stuff but yeah it was I, I wanted it to be more of a high adventure. There's a character in, in um, overseas called Lupin, mm -hmm. and I tried to make him like this, like that type of character, high adventure, a lot of lot of visuals and excitement. But um, the writers went another direction, so I did my best. But well, <sighs> that kind of leads me into this next one, getting a little more comic related, I guess. You talked about how much you grew up loving the X Men. What are some of your favorite X-Men characters, and what is your favorite X-Men comic book arc? Oh, okay. Well, for me, the the, the core group, um, when I was when I was growing up as a kid, obviously, they, you know, it was Cyclops, it was um, Jean Grey, the the Professor X. You know, it was. I guess it was that core group back. Yeah. Back in the '60s and stuff like that. But I really once once the new ones kicked in the. Uh, you know, with uh, Storm and Cyclops, I mean, sorry, uh, Colossus and stuff, um, and Nightcrawler. Um, those, those, I guess those three were the most, you know, got to me because they were more international and they were like new characters. And I had no idea what the hell a Wolverine was, so I was trying to figure out <laughs> who this guy was. And um, the, I guess from those two eras, I guess it would be those three. Um what was the other part of your question? I'm sorry. Uh, what is your favorite X-Men comic book story or arc? Oh, um, 
let's see. With uh, oh, back in the back in the sixty was the introduction of the of the Sentinels. Cause I thought, I think that was drawn by Neil Adams, and it was like, what the hell are these things? And they're pretty badass, and it was a great concept of these uh, mutant hunting hunting robots back then. Oh yeah, and I think it was uh, it was those... Claremont in that uh, was Claremont's first book. I think it was X Men uh, ninety four, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, ninety four, and I, yeah, I remember buying some of those, and I, I, I think I still have some of them, and um, I guess the I'm trying to remember the arc. Obviously, for me, what I remember having fun with, liking a lot, was the Phoenix when when Jean Grey they upgraded her powers and she became oh, yeah. Phoenix, and um, and then I think it was oh the, they created their their own version of the Legion of Superheroes called the Imperial Guard. Um, and the uh, Mcrom crystal and all that stuff. It was a lot of that was those were some nice arcs. And um, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember other one other story arcs that I'm um, and obviously Dark Phoenix. You know when she yeah everyone loves Dark Phoenix does. right right yeah and so those those are the one, I'm I'm trying to remember <laughs> issues but those are the ones I remember that stick in my brain. I I um. I liked the introduction of Storm and how she was the the introduction of her powers and and to the group and how she was um, kind of very naive as to the world of superheroes and as she you know she grew into it. I liked the way it was written, you know, back then. That's all I can remember right now, guys. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> now I got to ask about one cartoon that I actually enjoyed. And I pity the fool who says anything different, but Mr. T. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. I worked on that, yeah. Yes, you did. <laughs> I got to ask about that. You know, I, I, I like, I've always been a fan of Mr. T. I mean, I grew up watching the A-Team and then the cartoon. What's some of the stories behind that? You know, how did that come about and some of your involvement with it? Uh, I did my, and back then, I did. it was a show that was done through a company called... Um, Ruby Spears, mm-hmm. and it was, at, it was at the height of his popularity. He got turned into a TV show. Yep. And um, I remember one of the – for me, I was just doing storyboards. I wasn't one of the directors, but I, I did uh, I did acts for them, acts one, two, or three. Mm-hmm. Usually I tried to get act three. And um, one of the things I remember a little tidbit when they were designing the, the, um, the show, um, they – created all like for some reason they wanted a dog and so they created all these dogs and then they did this one dog said this is this is so crazy they did dog with a mohawk and you know they did want they had other dogs they wanted to pick but nobody's going to pick this dog and that's the one they picked (laughs) you know that's when we found out you don't give the networks a choice if you give them a choice they're going to go right for the one that you don't want yes (laughs) and that's how that dog got Mr. I think it's called T Bone or some yeah, something like weird that. name like yeah. that. But um, yeah, just I was one of the storyboard guys working on the show, and I worked on that show and Ruby and uh, Thundars. Mm-hmm. I think I did Superman over there. Um, they even did Turbo Team, one of those weird shows. Um, uh, Pac, no, not Pac Man. It was a hope. They were just in the in the eighties. They were just every year they had a weird cartoon that you could work on mm-hmm. back then. Yeah, you never know what it would be. It might be a Galactar one day and uh, <laughs> yeah, gem the next. Didn't know. Yeah, oh, it was a show called, 
um, at Hanna-Barbera was a show called, kind of like a Thunder ripoff, but it was called Galtar. And um, I, 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 what I do as a storyboard artist over there, I actually wrote in some dialogue where Galtar says some of Thundar's lines, hmm. Lords of Light or something, and trying to tie in that maybe these two were related. <laughs> they actually recorded it. It's in the show. Oh, you know, they went for my I said I wrote some additional dialogue. They said it, and it was like, oh, cool. Oh, and uh, now you're talking a about piece of trivia. Yeah, you're talking about some of the storyboards. I I have to know. Do you still own some of the original storyboards that you did back in the day? Very few. I uh, think uh, back then the the norm was you did a storyboard, you gave them the originals, you, and you got a copy of what you did, and you took that home. That was your which you did you kept it for your records mm-hmm. um they kept the originals and then you know this this is the thing they kept the originals because they needed if they needed to make more copies for the overseas studio like if there was a problem with this scene they could they could take the original and, and reprint it send it overseas because back then all we had was fax machines and was there was no internet back then but unfortunately what happened once once the production once the show got finished and this you know series was done they dumped all that in the trash. It would have been nice to pick up, get your originals back, but all yeah. of that gets got tossed. Oh, rough. That, that is so. That is so rough. I mean, the, honestly, yeah. to me, man, I would love like an X Men animated cell or just anything from that show would be so. But the fact that like they threw away that that's rough, man. That's so rough. Yes, they, it was. Yeah, they just. I mean, if you had a heads up that they were gonna from friends in production, like a production system that, hey, they just told me to dump this stuff. Then you could head to the, to, you could do dumpster diving and grab <laughs> some of your stuff, you know. But, you know, they they didn't have any value to the studios because it would have cost them more money to store it than it was to get rid of it. And yeah. that's what happened to a lot of a lot of uh, art in the 80s and 90s. It's It all got thrown away. That's a shame. That is a shame. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask, is there any comic books that you still keep up with till this day? I have been, not that many, but the ones that I have, let's see. I think at DC, they just brought back the original Superman. It was drawn by Lee Weeks, and I have been tracking that story. Because it felt like they were getting back to the... They brought the original Superman back, or some variation thereof, and so I have been buying that book. Um, let's see another one. Oh, it was um, I like the writing. I guess in let's see her name. She's the um, I think her name was Ms. Marvel, where she's a a, a lady from a, a little girl from India or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Kamala Khan. Mm-hmm. Kamala Khan. Yeah, her. And I like. I like what they were doing in the beginning, so I've been buying that book mm-hmm. because it's been it's been kind of interesting watching them write that character and stuff. Because I didn't know anything about that culture. That's another thing. So I've been curious. I've, there's some there's a few books I've been buying like that. Um, let's see if I can remember another one. Um, some of the Marvel books are just for me are too impenetrable because it's like there unless I come in at issue one, if I try and pick it up in the middle, it's like I don't know what the hell's going on. And so I have to ask the when I go to a comic book store, I have to ask the uh, the kids there, like, what? Why are they doing this? What's this all about? Um, and they keep they keep me up to speed on what's going on in the books, but uh, it's just too dense. 
I, I don't know what's going on anymore. Yeah, well, one so of the there's... best ways to keep in touch with what's going on is always listen to the Four Guys of Comic Podcast. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> I like that. There you go. Some, some uh, shameless like self-promotion. Yeah, right? there you go. Right. I had, I, it, was, it was big and for me. It just was. <laughs> but uh, I have to ask, you know, of all the stuff that you've done through all these years, is there one particular moment throughout uh, your career working on all these different things that was just something just so cool that you just, a great story, I don't know, a big screw-up that happened or something that really cool or some really great, you know, story that happened? Something that stood out. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. I got a, I, I was been in the business like 35 years. I saw I'm, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I you got a couple think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Um, Oh, let's see. One thing I, that I, um, I did I, in the original Spider-Man and the amazing friends, mm-hmm. when they were trying to get the show off the ground, they could not get the first script approved by the, by NBC. They kept getting rejected. So I sat down and I wrote a story called um, Swarm. I took a character that was in the Marvel comic books, the guy that's made out of bees, and I wrote the story of Swarm. And they submitted it, and that was the first script that they actually approved. And so, But I didn't get the writing credit for it because the story editor wanted to take care of it, quote with quotes. And so I got paid for doing the story and outline, but he actually did the final script. But he basically except for a few words, it was my script. Wow. So that was my actual first, uh, first script that I saw. And I, my script was the first episode that was actually approved by NBC. That so that's cool. one moment I remember. Um, the other thing I remember actually what I remember, but I didn't find this out until later. There's a famous animator from Disney Floyd Norm- Norman who brought this up to my attention about, four years ago um, in that um, story becoming a storyboard artist was kind of a glass ceiling for black artists back then Mm -hmm. that you could be a a director, you could be working in layout, but being a storyboard artist was kind of a glass ceiling. And my story was I went to the company I first started working for was a company called Filmation, which doesn't exist anymore. But I went there uh, to, to get work. I was working in computers, believe it or not, before I, I switched careers. And I went in there to take a test for layout, and I failed that thing twice. Mm. But, the, but the layout director saw that I had some uh, comic book work where I did for my own pleasure. I drew my own comic books. He saw that I knew how to tell a story. He took me upstairs to the storyboard department, introduced me to Don Christensen, which was the head of storyboard, he gave me a test. Didn't seem to be that didn't seem to be that hard. I took it home, brought it back the next day. I impressed him, and he hired me the same day. Wow! Oh, wow! What what I found out way later, I was the first black storyboard artist for Saturday morning. That had never happened before. I was the first guy. Wow! That's, that's cool. cool. That's so cool. I just got the chills. <laughs> so from that point forward once i got into storyboard then you know the rest i got i that was my career up and up before that point i was like um i used to fix computers for a living for about seven years working at 
I was a systems analyst for McDonnell Douglas, mm-hmm. uh, working in CAD CAM systems, and uh, I was bored as hell. <laughs> I was <laughs> working on computers, and I'm drawing comic books, you know? Yeah. And so I decided, I mean, this is going to sound strange, but I think I was like 24. And I said, I thought, man, I don't want to be 30 and still doing this. I, got, I, you know, I don't want to be that old. So I just had a little epiphany. I said, okay, let me... Let me see if I can make it as an artist. Mm-hmm. And so I went out and um, I kind of did it ass backwards, which I tell kids not to do because I quit my computer job and then I went to go look for an animation job. And you're not supposed to do that. Mm. You get the job first, <laughs> then quit. Yeah. <laughs> but Listen, kids. And so, yes, don't do that. You know, get the other job first, then quit your current job. But do I did as it I ass say, backwards. not as I do. <laughs> yes, yes. And so um, I was, I was pretty, I think I was pretty damn lucky to actually get that job. Cause it was like, I, I, after I realized what I did wrong, I was like, Oh shit, what am I going to do? But everything worked out yeah. and uh, became a surbit artist working on, um, I think it was um, Flash Gordon, then Lone Ranger, mm. then uh, Tarzan. And then when I left there, that's when I got hired at Marvel Productions with Stan Lee. They had been in business, I think, six months when they hired me to work on uh, their Spider-Man series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they needed another 30 episodes of their syndicated series, and that's when I got hired on but by the director, Art Vitello. And um, the rest is history. And it just yeah. kept going. And when I – some there was another point on G.I. Joe. I just remembered um, – one of the directors left. And so that's when I got my shot to be a director. And I directed, I think, the last episode. I think I directed on the last uh, four or five episodes of G.I. Joe. And I got a chance to write one. It's called Hearts and Cannons. You can look it up and you'll see that I wrote it with another writer. So that was my that was my first official writing credit. But my real I, my real first one was Swarm on Spider-Man and Amazing Friends. Very cool. Very cool. So... No one is half the battle. Yeah. (laughs) This has been a great interview so far. And I have one last question for you before we conclude our episode, I guess you could say. I know, right? (laughs) We we have to... It has to end sometime, Red. You know? But my final question, I guess you could say, is... What is in the future for Larry Houston? Are we expected to see anything new from you soon? Or do you have an idea for anything? Or is there anything that you just want to do and you want to talk about? Um, currently, what I'm working on, I I am um, officially, I actually retired um, the middle of last year. Mm-hmm. And I took six months, I took the rest of the year off. And this year, what I'm working on, um, I have so, I have a comic book that got published at Charlton Comics called The Vanguards. And mm-hmm. I had some other characters that I had created that what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to to retool these characters and come out with some new new issues. Uh, they were they were they were in an issue called uh, Charlton Bullseye number four. That's where it first got published. And um, I'm working to you know retool the characters for the for today. And I'm also working with uh, other artists. I'm doing some uh, children's books. Um, 
of some other ideas, trying to get them out there. So I'm trying to be creative. I'm trying to dabble in it and still, still, still uh, stay productive. But I want to try and work on my own stuff now and do stuff that makes me feel good. And hopefully there's an audience for it that will buy a copy or two. So that's what, that's what I'm up to right now. But, um, you know, it's great being able to just wake up and work on your own stuff at your own pace and not drive on the freeway every day. Oh, <laughs> I love not driving on that freeway. It was a pain in the butt. It's all too real, man. Uh, so that that's what I'm doing right now. And, uh, awesome. you know, just enjoying my life, enjoying my, my kids. My both, I got two boys. They're, um, they're in their 30s and... I see them, they come in and out of the house and uh, one, neither one wanted to be an artist, although they did have art, artistic skills, mm-hmm. but uh, one went into, one's a paramedic and the other one works in merchant retailing, which I had to have them explain what the hell was that. But it has to do with when you go and you swipe your credit card, they're the middleman between the credit card company and the, uh, Visa, massage charge, whatever. And that's what they do. Well, who knows? Maybe oh, one Visa, day Visa. they'll be like you and say, "You know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be an artist." <laughs> <laughs> I keep hoping. Believe me, I keep hoping because it's like I can help you. Yeah. I know people. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that is so cool. Well, you know, Larry, it's been really fun time talking it to you. Been. Like honestly, this. It's been great. I mean, you've answered questions that I've had on my mind for a few years, and now you've helped out all the fans in um, our four guys world, basically, that had all those questions as well. I mean, I'm sure you made a lot of people happy with this interview. Yes. I'm I'm glad I'm glad I was able to answer the questions, and, you know, if there's anything in the future you want to find out, um, I'll do my best to remember all the details that I can, you know? <laughs> we appreciate oh, that. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. All right. All right. Well, guys, this has been Larry Houston uh, being our special guest on Four Guys with a Red and I, the Rusty Surfer. And um, we're going to conclude this podcast now. And we're going to tell you, you know, be sure to check out our YouTube, you know, our Facebook, give us a like, whatever. And also, you know what? Shout out to Larry Houston for all the great stuff he's done in the past. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, we appreciate you, brother. All right, guys, we'll catch you next time. That's a wrap on another fun podcast. Thanks for joining us. But the comic fun doesn't stop here. Check out Four Guys in a Comic on our YouTube channel. You can watch our comic reviews, hilarious pulling ads, and comic hauls, among other comic hijinks. We're also on Twitter. We love talking to our fans. Drop us a line anytime. Not enough for you? We got your back. You can hang out with us on Instagram and Facebook, too. If that's not enough for you, we got a special deal for you. Comic Bento is offering our fans a special deal with 15% off. That's right. Use the link in the notes for 15% off a Comic Bento subscription. And if you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. Stay awesome, friends.